Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by our crew here in studio. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning, Brad. Morning, Bob. Hey, good morning. Morning, Philip. Hello, guys. Morning, Brian. Morning, everybody. So we're happy to have you with us as well. And if you ever have questions for us, you can always send us an email at bciksu.edu. We like listening to your questions and talking about them on the air. And we've got a couple good today that will be relevant for your operation. We're going to talk a little bit about feeding cows. So Philip, right up your alley. Talk a little bit about dairy beef and how that has changed and changed in the industry. We saw an interesting chart that we want to discuss through. And then, Bob, what we're going to get you to address, we've talked about front-end loading or having most of the calves born early in the calving season, how do we get there? We need to talk to the specifics of what are some of the tools that we can use. Before we get into those topics, really important question for you guys. As I was driving in and listening to the radio, Eastbound and Down comes on, mm-hmm. which ties right in with Smokey and the Bandit, right? Absolutely. And I'm thinking about what what other songs, what's your favorite song that really ties in with a specific movie? Do you have one? Oh, you know, I, I think that used to be more common, too. So I, I think of some of the James Bond movies. So I'm, I'm going to say Live and Let Die. That was one of the first ones that I remember that the song basically was the movie basically was the movie yeah. kind of kind of played exactly. out Brian? Uh, I'll, I'll go danger zone i mean i know oh. top gun has its own theme song and everybody knows that one too but danger zone intimately associated with top gun absolutely did you have the album when you were a kid um yeah probably did <laughs> <laughs> dustin uh so this past weekend i watched the new top gun movie again and uh so i'm actually going to say danger zone because i think kenny loggins mm-hmm. kenny loggins yeah but does he also sing that Footloose is that the other nineteen eighty? Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. But see, Footloose. Anytime I'm needing to get somewhere fast, I just put on Danger Zone. And I, just, <laughs> I can get there. You can go, Philip. The one that comes to my mind is Eye of the Tiger from the Rocky movie. Yeah. yeah. See, based on your guys' movie references, this hasn't happened a lot because all your references are at least 20 years old, at maybe 30. Uh, Yours yeah. is like 40, 40. years old. Yeah. <laughs> so 50. Yeah, or maybe I wasn't going to go there, Bob. Well, the rest of us in the room can't even go back that far. So yeah. as, as we start thinking about we're coming into spring, we're going to be – we've talked a lot about getting the cows ready to calve, but there's also a balance. And and Dustin, I'm actually going to turn to you first, because one of the things that we talked about was you could actually reach a point of diminishing returns. And you've seen that in some of the data. When you looked at the economic data on some of the herds in broad strokes, you could think about what are some of the what are some of the issues that might lead us to diminishing returns and tell us a little bit about how that concept may apply to feeding cows. So we think about this concept of diminishing returns, right? Thinking graphically, as I, I just like to visualize, but right, you're increasing at an increasing rate, whether whatever that is, um, just thinking crops and yields, right? Adding more fertilizer, right? You keep adding a little more fertilizer, you get higher yields or add a little more, you get a little more. And then eventually at a certain point, right, it, it, it kind of peaks. And adding more really doesn't get me much. Actually, it can harm it because mm-hmm. what it does then is it you know, takes away from the yield. But that's the concept I think what we're talking about here. And so I assume the same thing on the feeding side. I'm not a feeding expert, but, you know, you feed too much. A, it's expensive, especially with feed costs right now. And so there's that component of it. But I'm assuming there's other issues that could happen if you feed too much. Well, and you don't get as much bang for your buck, right? So as you put, as we think about feedstuffs, and we could think of them either on a protein basis or an energy basis, if they are utilizing every bit of that, then every dollar that I put in in protein and energy goes to the cow. 
if she starts to get a little bit overweight, then now I'm supporting fat and supporting some of the other things that it's not nearly as efficient. Is that are we on the right track here, Philip? Yeah, I'm going to go back. So the example that I use in class for the law of diminishing returns for animal production and stuff is heifer pregnancy. So if I'm trying to push my group of heifers to go from 85% preg rate to 90% preg rate, I don't know which ones in the group aren't going to get bred at this level for the 85%. So I got to feed the whole group more feed to push them to heavier weights to get that 90%. And that's a lot of extra feed for the whole group to just get an additional 5%. And I mean, you try to push up another one or 2% or another, you got to feed the whole group. And so there's a law of diminishing returns there of pushing more and more feed into that group of heifers to get one or 2% more pregnant. And so that's kind of the example I use. On the cow side, yeah, you're right. I mean, so another example, like what Dustin talked about, you think about vitamins and minerals. There's the deficient state there's the adequate state, and then there's the toxic state. And so the law of diminishing returns, I'm going to get a big boost in performance if, I, if my animal's deficient and I move them up to adequate. But then if I go too far, I'm going to push them over into the, onto the toxic side, and I'm going to start to see a decrease in animal performance. What's the nice thing about, as we're talking about nutrition in general, we typically don't get to what we would call a toxic state, right? They get fat, no, not, they may not be as productive. We typically don't get toxic. Not from an energy or protein standpoint, no. So, so how do I know, am I feeding, because it sounds like from what you guys are saying, I need to Goldilocks approach this, mm-hmm. right? Not too much or not too little. How do I know and what are some of the things I could look for, Bob? Well, I think one of the basics that we do know that body condition is a pretty good, it's not It's not really fine-tuned, but it's a pretty good barometer for is the cow about right and so a cow that's in good body condition and and then you can use some other attributes too you know just her you know, hair coat and you know does she, does she look like she's good and healthy and that's a pretty good indication that she's on a pretty decent diet the other thing when you talk about too much um, you can talk about just flat out too much energy or too much protein a lot of times what we're talking about is actually too much expense and then that can tie into sometimes my cheapest uh, energy source might give me more protein than I need. So in technical terms, in order to, mo- you know, to kind of optimize or minimize my feed cost, I might be feeding too much protein. And that's where, you know, I wouldn't pay to get that much protein in them. Mm. But with some of our byproduct feeds and things like that, to get the energy content I need, I'm, I'm giving them more than enough protein. And we do have to watch that can get not necessarily toxic, but to the point where it's not all that helpful and so you have to it's it's con it's total pounds of feed and it's cost of feed and it's the components of the feed yeah and so when we're doing that that feed or that byproduct is usually priced based on as an energy feed not priced as a protein feed so we're we're not adding a lot of cost because it's priced as an energy feed we're feeding it as an energy feed but as a bonus we're getting that protein and like you said, if we go too far, though, there, there's some data that, that if we get high BUN levels in blood ammonia, we can have some negative impacts on reproduction. Um, and so if we're pushing too much protein into that animal, there can be some negative consequences. Yeah, and that's, and, you know, another interesting thing is that um, we were making fun of me being old. But when, when I was taking some of my feeds and feedings classes and things like that, you know, uh, we had our feedstuffs that, that I dealt with, you know, corn, soybean, soybean meal, alfalfa hay, and those types of things. And in that scenario, protein was way more expensive than energy. And we balanced those rations 
to give enough protein to either adult cows or growing cattle. And we tried really hard not to feed more protein than necessary because that was the most expensive part of the diet. As my career went on and we got some byproduct feeds that were, you know, a high protein feed, it kind of flipped on its head. And protein became the cheaper ingredient compared to energy, which, again, is part of this conversation of am I feeding my cows too much and what exactly do you mean? So how do, how do you know, though? I mean, so you guys are talking in broad terms. I, I could manage my diet as we come in. How do, how do I know am I feeding them too much or not enough? Well, you're going to need to spend some time looking at the nutrient requirements for those cows and figure out, okay, what's the probably what's the expected nutrient composition of the feeds that I'm feeding. You may send them off for a nutrient analysis, but um, lots of times we don't in those cow-calf situations. And then have an estimate of how much they're eating. You know the supplement because you're probably hand-delivering that every day. And then you got to try to estimate how much forage or hay they're consuming. And then know whether I'm way above the requirement for protein or am I marginally above or, you know, where am I at? And then talk to a nutritionist and figure out what what's likely the level where you might be pushing BUNs or blood nitrogen too high. Yeah, and, and looking at the cows. Well, and yeah, I was going to say looking at the cows because Bob mentioned body condition score. And yes, doing nutrient evaluations of the feedstuffs is important, but the intake of the individuals is important too. And so if it's based off the average consumption, and, and this is kind of what Philip alluded to earlier, if it's the bottom 10% of the cows that are giving you the reproductive issues because their intake isn't enough or whatever, those are the ones you manage, right? And, and like Philip said, you can get a situation where you're trying to overfeed the entire, the other 90% just to get those 10% caught up to get their breeding rates up. And you probably aren't optimizing your re- reproduction or your nutrition by trying to managing the herd average. Yeah, absolutely. And I think good, good points there, guys, as you think about just being aware of it, watching how we're feeding, watching my diets, watching the cows as they go forward, because it's important to stay in that zone where you're optimal. I, I wanted to follow up. We talked last week about breeding technology, some of the changes. We didn't address one of the big ones that's actually changed some of the cattle feeding industry is sex semen, because sex semen has changed what we can do on the dairy side. And now you can produce Holstein heifers. And then the other offspring from the dairy herd can be mixed with a a different type to make them beef dairy cross. Brian, you spent time in the dairy industry when you were in practice. Is this something, did you see a lot of beef dairy cross at that time? Or has this all changed since you were in practice? Not, not when I was in practice, we didn't see it. And like you said, it's it's evolved with the evolution of sex semen, right? And so if I have an animal that I want to develop a dairy replacement animal from, I can use heifer female semen, right, and get a heifer offspring that will then be a replacement into my herd. But then if I if I have enough replacements and I want to take advantage of the economics of additional calves, then the benefit is to have male sex, uh, male beef semen, right? And so I can produce beef dairy steer calves. Um, and so there's, so it's really, it's really adjusting to what my needs for replacements are, and then how to maximize my return on the additional calves that my dairy can produce. But that's that's all come along with sex semen. That's 
barely and, knew. And it's changed dramatically. And Dustin, I want to get your thoughts on this chart that we saw from Cattle Facts, and it, and it shows that it's looking at the the volume of dairy versus dairy beef cattle in in video auctions, and it shows essentially the dairy volume is unchanged. However, the beef dairy cross from 2020 has gone from oh five to ten thousand a month all the way up to in the fifteen thousand range as you get into 2023 what do you what do you see on that chart when you look at it dustin well as as we noted earlier right this is only video auction sales so just keep that in the back of our minds you know dairy has been unchanged we're seeing a lot especially what in 20 beginning of 2022-ish you know we're seeing a, a, expect, a large expansion in this this crosses uh, which probably comes at a good time that I mean the cow numbers are down I mean so we think we're already seeing pretty high prices you know for live cattle definitely it's probably helping maybe tamper that a little bit but uh, so I don't know that that would be my initial thought was it's probably helping out the you know the consumer side I guess. So what, what does that change from the health and nutrition side as we see that influx of beef, dairy, calves coming in? Bob and Philip, I'll turn to you guys. Well, you know, just a couple of reasons why this is, is happening is, you know, in a, in a feedlot animal that, that think about a 100% Holstein steer, you know, kind of flat muscled, less efficient gain, and you make it a half and half. So it's half Holstein on the maternal side and a good beef bull on the other side. And, you know, the, the carcass looks different. Uh, there's there's more muscle. There's It's more like a beef type of a carcass. And so there's some real value to the consumer, to the packer, to and to the to the feeder because this animal is not as efficient necessarily as a 100% beef calf, but way better than a Holstein calf. Now, there are some interesting things because, but it's not really like a 100% beef calf because a 100% beef calf uh, was raised on his mother until he was, you know, seven months of age, and then a lot of times put on grass and doesn't come to the feed yard till he's, you know, 900 pounds or so, and he's been grazed mostly on on forage. Whereas these dairy calves, because they're born in a dairy environment, are going to be started on a a hand fed diet much earlier in life. So there there are some definite differences, uh, even though once you get them in the feedlot pen, they can look a, pretty much like a pen of of 100% beef calves. Yeah, and I think that's the real reason why I think we're seeing a bigger volume is that improvement in cattle performance and carcass quality. Those animals have a much better value to the dairy than a 100% Holstein steer. And so more dairies or more calf ranches are looking at marketing those different ways so that they they can capture that value. And so going through a video auction like we've seen this graph may be one of those ways to capture that value well and, and i think the other thing to recognize too is you know the beef on dairy cross thing is relatively new i probably in the last five years it's really kind of but i think the other thing that's happened is it's not it's not just you can take any beef semen and stick it in any holstein cow and get a calf that's gonna perform and so i think we're starting the the sex semen technology has gotten better which has made beef on dairy feasible but we're still learning quite a bit. And I think we're starting to figure some things out about not just can we do it, but how to best do it. And when we start to optimize that, then it, it gets better. And I think maybe that, yes, this is only video auction. And so that it might just be representative of the folks that 
go towards video. But I do think, we're not, I don't think we have any more dairy cows. So I don't think that represents a trend, but I think the technology and how we use it, we might be learning some things that are making it better that might explain some of that trend in the last couple of years. So not just sex semen, but which bulls we're picking yeah. and then being able to evaluate how those things go together. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, Brad. I think a lot of semen companies and breed associations have figured out there's value there, and they are putting together genetics that complement that Holstein genetics very well for producing a feedlot calf. Absolutely. So we'll keep an eye on that trend as it as it continues to grow, because you're right, Brian, not more dairy cows, but we're seeing a lot more beef dairy cross calves. Bob, I want to turn back to you and follow up on some of our discussions. And, and we've talked about it several times, and you've used the phrase front-end loading. Boy, you should be front-end loaded. You should be front-end loaded, which means you want your goal is to have about two-thirds of the cows calve in the first 21 days of the calving season. And, and I'm not going to go into the details of why that's important because I really want to focus on if I'm not there, how, how do I get there? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. So let's picture a scenario where... My goal is to have, say, 60% of the cows calve in the first 21 days and then well over 80% calve in the first 42 days, the first two heat cycles. Well, there's a lot of herds where that's not quite where we are today. Maybe 30 or 40% are calving in the first 21 days, so about half of where I want to be. And uh, so how do I get there? And, and a couple of things, and I'm glad Philip is here because one of the, I think it's a temptation to say, well, if I fed them better, I could, I could move those late calving cows earlier. And I'm going to say that doesn't work very well. And it's mostly because we have 365 days in the year. If I want her to calve again at the exact same time as next year. So, well, let's say if I wanted to calve 20 days earlier, now I don't have 365 days. I've got 340 days to get her pregnant again from the last time she got pregnant. Well, she, her gestation is 283 days. So now I only have about you know, 60 days to get her pregnant if I wanted to get pregnant 20 days earlier than she did last year. And that's actually asking quite a bit for a cow. The typical period of infertility after calving is around 60 days. And so we, we can get her to do that, but on a population average, uh, when I say the average is 60 days, well, you can say, well, most cows are somewhere between 60 days plus or minus 20. So 40 to 80 days period of infertility and so just and, and feeding them more, getting them in better condition doesn't really drop that number very much. Now, letting them get thin can make that number get longer. So it's, it's, it's a two-edged sword. Nutrition is important to keep them from getting longer. But whether she's in good body condition or excellent body condition, her, her period of infertility is about the same length. So we can't just feed them. So then our, our strategy really is around, well, as we bring, so if, there, if a cow is already in the herd, her, she's on the track she's on, basically, and it's pretty hard to shift her tracks. So then it's all about bringing in the replacements, either purchased heifers, purchased cows, or developed heifers, and make sure that they are calving in that first 21 days or ahead of that first 21 days. And doing that for several years, so it's, it's really about the new animals into the herd, not the existing animals. I mean, there's a few things you can do. You, can, you could shorten your breeding season, and if she doesn't get pregnant she could get cold but i'll end up with more open cows and i'm not sure i want to do that and so i think it just so maybe my story is it takes discipline it takes several years of making sure that my replacements calve early so that they're on the track that they will be cat early calvers throughout their life 
and then working on that for several years. So I've seen some data and heard some people talk about, can we use a ester synchronization protocol earlier after parturition to try to induce some of those later calving cows to start cycling earlier after calving? A little bit. The thing about a, a synchronization protocol that has a progesterone in it, it, it has the opportunity to decrease that length of the period of infertility. But in that scenario when I was saying that, you know, only 30 or 40% are calving in the first 21 days, and then, you know, another 30% are calving in the second 21 days, it's those cows in that second 21 days or possibly the very first part of the third 21 days that might respond and be able to move up into the first 21 days. Well, there's there's just not that many cows in that group that, that would respond. So, so if you look at it kind of from the university standpoint, I move more numbers of cows that way. But it's kind of like what we were talking about before, the diminishing returns. It's not very many, and I don't know which ones it is. So I have to use this technology on all of them to move a few. So it, it does work, but it doesn't always pay. So I've got a question, Bob. So what if, let's say I'm tired of calving in the cold and the yuck, and I want to move my calving season back. And so if, I, if I've made that decision, I'm, I'm going to take a hit this year. I'm, it's my calving, my marketing is going to move back. But if I'm making that decision this year, I'm going to move things back for other reasons, is that a good opportunity to maybe you're giving more cow, you're giving the cows a little more rest. Maybe you can implement some synchronization and then you could front load. If, if you do that together. Yeah, I think that, and and this is a deeper conversation that, that a, you know, a veterinarian and a producer and, and their advisors need to think about because that, that would work really quickly as long as that kind of does fit the operation better. It fits the labor, it fits the forage better, and then maybe you can get on a track that's sustainable moving forward. My, my only concern is if, you know, got into this problem because of you weren't watching the cow body condition close enough and other things, and you don't change those habits, you'll, you'll make it better for a while, but then you could slip backwards. But then one other quick thing is when we think about that length of that postpartum infertility, and I, you know, throw out, well, 60 days is average. Well, it's about average for calves, cows that calve in March. It's actually a little bit shorter if they calve in April. And so there, there is a daylight effect. And so then if they calve in February, it's actually a little bit longer than that. And so by, by moving my breeding season so that maybe, so I'm thinking of kind of central Kansas area, instead of starting to calve in March, if I aim for starting in April, yes, first year that makes front-end loading way easier and maybe get the herd rack on the right track. And then in subsequent years, my period of infertility is actually a little bit shorter by letting day length get a little bit longer before we start breeding. And so there might be several advantages. It, but again, kind of back to the diminishing returns, looking at all your costs, all your the benefits, you, you need to consider those, but it's some tools that might work. But you got to look at everything because then if we start calving in April and May, we're now breeding in July and August, which in some parts of the country is not Correct. a great idea. Some parts of the country works fine. That's so exactly so right. you got you to gotta flesh that whole part out. But I think what you're saying is, I, I need to concentrate rather than trying to move existing cows in my herd for the most part. It is when I bring in new animals, whether they're heifers or bred cows, get them calving early and then concentrate my efforts on keeping them there. Yep. I'm not trying to move anything to the front end. That's I'm actually a good summary. There. I'll give you a compliment. That was a good summary. Yes. It's, I can't change the cows that I already have. 
their, their typical time of calving. But I can focus on not letting them slide backwards, and I can focus on bringing in new ones that'll fit. And you didn't even know I was listening. I didn't even know. <laughs> I know. I wasn't paying attention, but I still was able to summarize. So, no, it was a good, good summary, and we appreciate that information. And as always, if you have questions, comments, things you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm-hmm.